News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. What is going on with the federal Green Party? An MP that crossed the floor and joined the Liberals? A leadership council that appears to be trying to oust the leader? And a leader who says she refuses to go and is firing back? To try and figure all this out, we're joined now by David Aiken, our Global News Chief Political Correspondent. David, thank you for joining us this morning. Yeah, thanks, Simi. And, and you know what? I, my, my title for Global is, quote, Chief Political Correspondent. And uh, after a year of vaccines and COVID, it's it's nice to talk a little backroom <laughs> politics because, my oh my, we got all kinds of politics going on here with the Green Party. Yeah, no kidding. How did this all start? This started with the Israel-Hamas conflict, to be honest with you, and that got a lot, a lot of people in Canada around the world watched that conflict. It provoked a lot of strong opinions. The, uh, what I'd call the mainstream diplomatic opinion around, uh, uh, Israel's allies in the West, this includes Canada, was that, uh, you know, all so- we, there was a general call for a ceasefire. Mm-hmm. There was a condemnation uh, against the uh, terrorist group Hamas for throwing rockets uh, at civilians in Israel. And certainly there was criticism of Israel uh, for what was perceived to be excessive violence as it uh, responded to those attacks. So again, you know, call for a ceasefire. Everybody put down tools that seemed to be um, the general as I say, mainstream diplomatic response. And in fact, that was the response from the Green Party leader, Annami Paul. That was a statement she issued essentially along those lines to condemn sort of both sides and the violence and call for a ceasefire. The MP that would eventually cross the floor, Fredericton's Janica Atwin, found that, as she said on social media, quote, totally inadequate. And Jenica Atwin went on to say, you know, there there are not two sides in this conflict. There's only one victim. It's the Palestinians. And then she used the phrase apartheid in connection with Israel. And that is a, a phrase that deeply offends many Jewish groups. And I would say most parliamentarians here in Ottawa, that that is an inappropriate term to use. Um, and at that point, Annami Paul's, uh, one of Annami Paul's advisors, uh, a guy named Noah Zatzman, uh, Noah took offense to that on uh, on social media as well. And though he didn't mention Janica Adwin by name, he vowed to defeat uh, MPs like that who were taking uh, such an anti-Israel stand. Janica, I guess, felt under threat about that, and that would eventually lead to her leaving and joining the Liberals. At that point, there was a lot of cries from Green Party members, from Green Party councillors, and from Elizabeth May and Paul Manley, that that Annami Paul had really got to rein in this advisor. No, you mm-hmm. can't have a political staffer working to defeat one of your own MPs. She did not do that. And so on Tuesday night, the C- governing council of the Greens did pass a motion, um, narrowly voted, just five votes to four, to say to this to Annami Paul, the leader, listen, Ms. Paul, you either publicly rebuke that advisor or you're going to face a non-confidence vote on July the 20th, and that would be the first step to basically booting you from your job. Okay, now I mentioned it was a 5-4 to four vote. Yeah. Any vote on non-confidence, that needs a three-quarters majority. There will be 12 voters on July 20th, so you need nine votes to kick her out. 
And remember, on Tuesday night, she only got five to four. Or she it was only five votes, and four people stood with her. So I think Annamie Paul yesterday, among other things, she took a look at the numbers on the council, and she said, to heck with that. I'm the leader. I am not going to, she said, bow down. I am not going to be, quote, brought to heel. She also reminded everybody, and of course, if you haven't seen her, uh, Annamie Paul is, is the first elected black female leader in our country. She's the first elected Jewish leader in our country. And, uh, sorry, a Jewish female leader. I uh, don't want to leave out David Lewis of the NDP mm-hmm. there. But, uh, nonetheless, she's saying, you know, wait a minute, there was, you know, one rule for Elizabeth May when she was leader. And now all of a sudden you want some different rules when I'm the leader? And she's saying, to heck with that. Um, she didn't ask for special accommodation, and she's not going to accept any. And she's basically said, you know, this is this was a move by five councillors on their way out. And indeed, this is the other this is the other complex thing in this story. As I mentioned, there's 12 voters on that council in mm-hmm. in in, uh, in July. Well, there's actually 18 positions on the council, but five are vacant, and the other one is is Annamie Pauls. So, you, uh, and there's elections underway right now for the vast majority of the rest of the council. So you've got essentially a lame duck gr- governing yeah. council. With five vacancies, with an interim president even, and an interim executive leader trying to unseat the leader who was just elected by the membership, you know, not not even 12 months ago. Um, there's a changing of the guard happening here for sure. And uh, and I can say also, too, I know this is important that people w- have, might have been wondering where Elizabeth May was in all yes. this because she is such a figure. Um, I, she had some, some, uh, she had some, uh, surgery that this week. She needed some joints replaced. It's nothing serious. She's going to be fine. But, so she's sort of, you know, right now, literally on the sideline. But Annamie Paul said yesterday that this attempt by these five counselors, they, they tabled a letter that was discussed, essentially a charge sheet, allegations. And Annamie Paul says that Elizabeth May and Nanaimo's Paul Manley, the two Green MPs still in, in the House, were offended deeply by this charge sheet. They believed it was racist and sexist, and they rejected this charge sheet. And again, that's not to say I think all things are... uh, My sense is things are not yet all patched up between Annamie Paul, Elizabeth May, and Paul Manley. There's still, I think, work to do there, but um, it doesn't look like... uh, My sense is Elizabeth, neither Elizabeth May nor Paul Manley are certainly leading any uh, right. push to get rid of the leader, but there's definitely some who want to get rid of the Green Party leader. Right. So there you go. There you go, Siri. I hope you were taking notes. I was. It's a bit complex. <laughs> it is. And, you know, I'm trying to still wrap my head around all of this because this seemed to have started with Jenica Atwin's defection to the Liberals. And then when she mm-hmm. got to the Liberals, she essentially disavowed those comments that had caused all the problem in the Green Party to begin with. You're right. Remember I said um, she used that phrase apartheid. Yeah. And, uh, and she... You know, one side only. Uh, and she did try to walk back those statements and she gets into the Liberal caucus and there are, uh, you know, the, the, I mean, for one thing, the Liberals, Liberals generally, uh, revere a former Montreal MP, a former Justice Minister, Erwin Kotler. Erwin Kotler, Jewish, he's, he's led the charge for human rights and he would, he's a law professor. He's spoken in the House of Commons eloquently several times denouncing those who would use this what some call anti-Semitic, anti-Israel term apartheid. And here's Janica Atwin. Um, and believe me, there were a lot of liberals going, she's got to sit in that caucus and explain, you know, mm-hmm. what she was meaning. So I guess she decided that she hadn't really thought things through. And I could tell you, you know, I've been talking to Green Party insiders all week, even before, you know, at the last couple of weeks, even before Atwin left. 
And Atwin, Atwin apparently did phone up Annamy Paul after this post in which she used the word apartheid and called out her leader. And I'm told she did apologize privately to Annamy Paul for causing all the, this disturbance. Now, that was when, you know, I guess she was thinking about leaving. Mm-hmm. Then after she left, as you said, she did issue this public sort of apology for using this language. But uh, m- reminder, she's a first-time MP. Um, you know, she's new to elected politics in that sense. She was elected in 2019. And ironically, she unseated a liberal incumbent right. in in New Brunswick, you know, a guy named Matt DeCursio. I wonder how he's feeling now that, you know, here's... Here's the, the the woman who beat him is now in the caucus, and you know the bigger picture too, Siri. It, it, it is, it is Simi is is. Um, I just called you Siri. Oh, it happens all the time. My iPhone all the time <laughs> happens all the time. A bit. Um, the the bigger issue here, of course, is you know the Greens do only win like they won a million and a half vote, or one point three million votes in the last election. They only got three seats. But here's the thing. In B.C., as you know, watching provincial politics and certainly federally, a strong Green Party can be a threat to the NDP. And in the last election on Vancouver Island, the Greens absolutely were gunning for the seat of Victoria that Mm -hmm. uh, Laurel Collins would win. They were looking to unseat Randall Garrison in Esquimalt. Um, And generally, you know, that's where they think they can pick seats up at the expense of the New Democrats. In eastern Canada, particularly in New Brunswick and Prince Edward Island, the Greens actually have a really strong base, and there it's all liberals who are worried about a green surge. So a strong Green Party, it threatens New Democrats on your coast, and it threatens liberals in the East Coast. And again, if you're a conservative or anybody else, you are watching how the green vote goes because that could affect Um, the numbers for the government. So it's a big deal. Oh, it is a big deal. Thank you for explaining to us this morning. No problem, Simi. Have a great morning. This is Mornings with Simi. Coming up this hour, we are going to be speaking with Mary Ellen Terpel-Lafond about the case involving the Indigenous man and his granddaughter who were put in handcuffs by police at the BMO in downtown Vancouver. That story and the new video that goes along with it prompted Vancouver Mayor Kennedy Stewart to say yesterday that he has submitted a request to the provincial government to increase the power of mayors who chair their police boards. He's been very vocal about wanting the Vancouver Police Department to tackle the issue of systemic racism, while the VPD chief says he doesn't think that's a problem. But Kennedy Stewart isn't the only mayor to ask for more power over the police board. So has the mayor of Delta, George Harvey. And he joins us now to talk more about that issue. Thank you for joining us. Uh, Good morning. Why did you feel this was important to ask for? Well, I'll be asking formally in mid-July by making a presentation directly to the uh, committee. I'd first like to say thank you to the province and to the Minister of Foreign North insofar as setting this uh, committee up. Uh, It's so, so needed. Uh, This police act has not been reviewed for far too long. But uh, as mayor, and and as city manager for 20 years and now for mayor almost three, I have firsthand experience with the frustrations of the limits that the police board requirements as they exist now place upon mayors. And the only way I can put it bluntly is all we're there for is a figurehead. We have no authority. We We can't take independent action. And again, I must state that I'm speaking now, not as a member of the police board, but as the mayor of Delta. And so I will be presenting a number of issues to the uh, to the special committee uh, with regards to frustrations I'm having as mayor in Delta. Right. So, you know, people look at you and they think, well, if something happens with the police department, they're going to go ask the mayor about that. But you're saying you can't actually do anything about that. 
the trouble that we have in BC is we're the only province that has this type of structure of uh, police boards. When you look at Alberta, Saskatchewan, Manitoba, and Ontario, they all have police boards where the mayor isn't the chair necessarily. It's always a vote. But they also have more representation from elected officials. We need more elected officials involved on police boards. And why do you think that would make a difference? Because elected officials are the ones that the public go to, uh, not police board members, uh, when there's concerns of public safety. And uh, just the recent uh, unfortunate shooting that we had in Delta, uh, it was my office that was, you know, we had a number of people uh, commenting on and requesting information. And as the, as the chair of the police board, I can't give out that information. I can't comment without consensus of the board. Uh, but the mayor is elected, and I refuse to take part in something where I'm just a figurehead. That's not what I was elected for. Right. The other problem I have with the police uh, board structure as it is now, it, it is not representative of our society. And we need to reflect police board members with you know, more race, age, and other key factors. You know, we need more rounded voice at the board table. And in Delta's case, when I ran for mayor, I wanted younger people. And I wanted younger people to say to us what they needed for housing, for example. Fortunately, we had two great councillors elected with me, Councillor Alicia Gishon and Councillor Kruger. Those two individuals would make a great, great addition to the police board. But, oh, no, they don't want to do what they say is that they don't want to have political interference. And I take real exception to hearing that from uh, staff of the, uh, of the province because the act really protects the police chief from any political interference. But we need more elected officials. In fact, we should have school, elected school trustees on the board also to ensure that we're having uh, a good representation of stakeholders in our community. Okay, so people may not understand how this works then. So how does one get appointed to the police board? Well, that's another interesting thing because it's all related to whichever provincial party is in power. And so that goes through a committee that is vetted through the province. And uh, you, you can see every every election, there's uh, people from various uh, one party, then they're taken off, and then the other party comes in. So I think that whole area has to be reviewed. Uh, but I must say, you know, the police board members in Delta are a very hardworking, very dedicated group. And this isn't about them. This is about ensuring that we can have a reform to the Police Act to ensure that there's more accountability. And again, I really emphasize we need elected officials. We're elected. We're elected from people of Delta in our case. And they expect the elected officials to act on public safety. Do you feel like the time has come for these kinds of changes? I'm really, really, uh, absolutely. Again, when you look at what happens in the structures in other provinces, we're way behind on them. And when you look at situations as diversity on police boards, uh, we can do that, uh, but we need to have more direct involvement of elected officials. And again, I, I, I emphasize again the school situations with uh, various councils uh, asking for removal of school officers, um, uh, you know, police officers in schools, and we need the representation from elected officials of trustees on police boards too. They have a very, very important role to play. Have you spoken to other mayors who do have police forces in their jurisdiction? I've spoken uh, casually to them, yes. And, uh, of course, we work very closely as a mayor's council and our metro board of Vancouver and TransLink. And um, it's it's all recognized that no matter how good you may want to manage as a mayor, you're always at times going to be in conflict. And I've found that the last couple of years. Yeah, it's difficult, isn't it? Because, you know, you're asking for more oversight over the police department. That may be difficult for the police department to take because they're thinking, well, wait a minute, what's what's going on here? What I don't want to have more uh, you know, people telling me what to do. I, I, I disagree with that because the relationship I have with our police chief uh, is very positive. Uh, what the police uh, 
chiefs and our good police officers are looking for is solid uh, governance uh, from the police board and good representation. We don't want they don't want to be seen as in, in conflict, uh, but we can use our city resources much more efficiently by having more involvement and more people on the police boards allowed through the government. Again, I'm really emphasizing and very strongly say that we need more elected officials as other provinces have now. If it works in the rest of Canada, why wouldn't it work in BC? Mayor Harvey, do you think people are surprised to even find out the system is set up the way that it is? Well, I've had a number of emails where I said, sorry, I can't uh, comment on this, and this is why, and I point out the uh, information that's online in the Police Act and the Police uh, Chair Handbook, and then say, well, I didn't realize that. And uh, so people are surprised. People expect the mayor to be front and center and make a difference. And that's why I ran for office. I want to make a difference. But in this case, I refuse just to go and be a figurehead. Okay, so what are the next steps here? Next step for me is uh, continuing lobbying on this, and I'll be presenting to the special committee on mid-July, and I'll be having the police chief attend with me. And uh, moving forward and ensuring, trying to do the best we can to ensure that there's changes to the act. It's time. Yeah, I look forward to hearing more about this. Thank you for your time. Anytime. Thank you, and have a great day. You too. That's George Harvey, the mayor of Delta. He'll be making some presentations uh, to the committee in Victoria that is looking after changes to the Police Act. They're in the process of reviewing the Police Act. And for the Delta mayor, as you heard him say, he's very passionate on this issue, and rightfully so, believes that mayors should have more ability to hold police forces accountable as the chairs of the police board. And right now they don't have a whole lot of power. It's a, a pretty much a figurehead role, as he pointed out. And also, is it time for us to have more elected representation on a police board uh, so that they can actually bring up some issues and there's accountability there too? If you want to weigh in, simi at cknw.com. Certainly a very interesting issue there that seems to keep coming up recently. Uh, you can also call our buzz line 604-331-2899. Do you support the ideas that Delta Mayor Dar- Har- Del- um, George Harvey was just talking about there? This is Mornings with Simi. So the other story that is driving me crazy this morning. It's that story that just continues to shock no matter how often you hear about him. It's the Indigenous grandfather who was trying to open a bank account with his 12-year-old granddaughter. They were arrested and handcuffed. And now there's surveillance video that shows the situation unfolding. Maxwell Johnson was there to open an account, but the bank called the police claiming their documentation was fraudulent and it was not. Now, that video will add support for their human rights complaint against the Vancouver Police Department. And along with that video, they now have the assistance of former BC youth advocate, judge, and current law professor, Mary Ellen Turpel-Lafon. She will be applying to intervene in the case, and she joins us now to talk about why. Good morning. Thank you for joining us. Good morning, Simi. What did you think when you saw that video? Well, I'm glad the video came out to the public, but what I thought was, here's just a couple of ordinary people going about their business going banking. They're not, you know, disruptive or they're doing nothing. They're just patiently being like kind of walked out, standing on the street in front of the Bank of Montreal with police there handcuffing them, including a 12-year-old. And their supposed crime is being Indigenous and trying to use their status card to do some banking. It just, I think, outrages, it just outrages me every time I think about it or hear about this story. So what can be done about it? Like, tell me about the human rights complaint process. What do you hope to help with? Well, there's two aspects of this. There's, you know, there's sort of two main parties involved here. The Bank of Montreal mistreated them terribly and humiliated them. And um, because 
Maxwell Johnson was going to get money for his granddaughter, who, by the way, he was raising, um, a 12-year-old, and um, he had a little bit extra money in his bank account, and they were very suspicious about the fact that an Indigenous man would have money in his bank account. So that kind of tweaked the Bank of Montreal to get suspicious and kind of profile them. But then they called the police. So the second party is what happened with the Vancouver police. So the Vancouver police showed up and they, you know, immediately detained them and kind of perp marched them out to the street on a busy day in Vancouver, where a lot of Indigenous people are kind of intimidated already. And Max and his granddaughter from Helpsick, um, and they were standing on the street while people were walking by and arrested and searched. And that part is what the Human Rights Tribunal is about, is how the police interacted with this Indigenous um, sick grandpa and his granddaughter. And the Human Rights Tribunal is like, they have human rights, you can't do this, Vancouver police. And Vancouver police has never really owned up to this situation. And as a result, you know, we'll, we'll let the Human Rights Tribunal decide what they think. Right. So what do you think owning up to the situation looks like? Well, you know, a, a friend of mine, retired Judge Selwyn Romilly, unfortunately, uh, you know, about a month or so ago, he was arrested. He's a black judge. He was arrested walking the seawall. They were then um, handcuffed. And um, the police, you know, pro- appropriately and correctly gave him an immediate apology. It should never have happened. They, I don't know how they're going to assure it doesn't ever happen again to a black person walking the seawall. But they did give an apology. Max and Torianne never got an apology. They got something called, you know, well, we regret what happened. Um, And, like, that's not good enough. And inside the Vancouver police, between the police board, the chair of the board who's the mayor, the rank-and-file officers, you know, I don't think they can figure out what they think of the situation. And for the most part, they've said there's nothing wrong with it. Uh, And that's the problem. Yeah, I don't understand that. Since when do police officers show up because somebody, the bank thinks that there's too much money in a bank account? Like, since since that could happen every day to all sorts of people, the police don't show up and arrest people every single time. Yeah, and I think the other part of it is, I mean, what were they doing? They were simply using their Indian status card, which is government-issued identification, to do some banking. A lot of First Nations people only have that status card because they get issued in communities. It's not like we have a passport office, you know, in Helptic. <laughs> so they use the status card and it's something that's like protected. It's like very high quality. If you see it, it looks like any kind of government identification, but that profiled them and that targeted them. And um, a lot of Indigenous people, you know, have shame even having to use that status card because as we've learned a lot recently around residential schools and other policies, you know, this is a humiliating thing that you kind of have to have with you, but it's the only identification you have. Mm -hmm. And so the Vancouver police should know this well. They've they've been engaging with Indigenous people for years in different ways. You know, we've been through the Frank Paul inquiry. We've been through the Picton inquiry to talk about uh, policing and engagement with the Indigenous community. But the Union of BC Indian Chiefs, you know, and who are my client and Grand Chief Stuart Phillip, you know, he said very clearly yesterday, like the party's over. We're not putting up with this anymore. And um, there will no be zero tolerance for anti-Indigenous racism by the Vancouver Police Department. Well, thank you for your time on that this morning. Appreciate it. Thank you. This is Mornings with Simi. A Vancouver Scholarship Foundation has just informed its recipients, 112 BC's grade 12 students, 
of the good news that they have been accepted into a new cohort. And they're not going after the typical, and I put this in air quotes, awardees. We're going to find out more about that from our Raji Sohal this morning. Hi, Raji. Hi, Simi. I love this story so much. First of all, anyone getting a phone call with good news is amazing. But yes, 112 BC grade 12 students have just been awarded a BD Luminary Scholarship to go to university. It's worth $40,000. And yeah, like you said, normally scholarships go to the top performing percentile of students, right? But not this one. And that's what's super cool about it because uh, luminaries specifically helps students who face some kind of an obstacle or barriers to accessing higher education. They have to demonstrate academic readiness. So they need to show that if they were at university, they could handle the course load and that kind of thing. So so medium grades, um, but they don't have to be straight A students, which is fantastic. And their founder, uh, Ryan Beatty, told me they specifically go after students who have faced some kind of adversity. We're targeting those students. It's not just necessarily A or A plus students. As many B students or B plus students who, if they had uh, better life circumstances, could well be A students or A plus students. So there are a number of factors that we consider beyond just grades. And we don't provide just a check. We're not just saying, okay, here's you know $40,000 for a four-year university program. We have you know full-time uh, counselors for the stay on track programs. So if a student has an issue, they call the office, we can help them. We have peer to peer supports. We've created like in young presidents organization, we have something called forums where these students get together and share their experiences, you know, of their student life and can, you know, build strength from each other. We have a mentorship program. So every student is paired with a a mentor, so they have someone to guide them through uh, life and answer questions and what have you. We're trying to provide a full complement of, of things to, to help students succeed. So it's not just, here's a check and you're on your own. We have, what can we do uh, to consistently try to help the students achieve their highest potential? This is like a dream scholarship, Raji. What a great idea. <laughs> Yeah, it really is. I mean, especially if a student has faced uh, social uh, adversity in some way, psychological adversity in some way, they need that extra help. They don't, they need more than just a check, right? And also, Simi, the top academic percentile gets a lot of financial help from scholarships easily, right? But people who fall just short of that uh, because of challenging life circumstances, they're often just totally forgotten. And where in my mind can potential scholarship money make a real difference? It's with these kinds of kids. So here's just some stats for you. 35% of the kids that have gotten this scholarship uh, are the first in their family to pursue post-secondary education. Oh, and that. 75% of them are coming from single parent or legal guardian families. And what's different this year, this is super cool, is they're offering a cohort of support to single parents who are pursuing higher education. And I talked to one such recipient. Um, she was just lovely to talk to. Her name's Nishani Rajkumar. And she left Sri Lanka in 1999 uh, because of civil war. She literally could not continue her studies in accounting um, at university there during that time. It was too dangerous. So she came to Canada. She um, had just become a single parent of an eight-year-old and a five-year-old. And she devoted her life to volunteering in the community at her son's schools and stuff. And she was trying to improve her English so that she could eventually go back to school. And her son, Ethan, he won a BD scholarship. He's actually studying neuroscience at UBC with it. And he found out this year that they were offering scholarships to single moms. And he said to his mom, Nishani, hey, like, what do you think about this? 
Peter said, mom, you know, they are introducing the single mother scholarship. So I thought, why well, I cannot try, right? Because I want to, uh, I always want to do something for myself, right? So I just applied and then, and then I just think, oh, if they don't give it to me, then that's okay too, right? Because Ethan already got the scholarship, but I cannot ex expect that I'm going to get the scholarship, right? So, but uh finally they just give i'm i'm really shocked and until right now i just it was like a just just like a dream and then i i asked them are you sure right like because it's it's kind of like unbelievable to get the scholarship and then i want to go to school and i finish and i want to do something for my kids and the community Okay, that's adorable, Raji, because what, you win a scholarship and you ask them, are you sure? <laughs> <laughs> this is a single mom who has tried so hard to make it work here, really wants to get back to school. And if it weren't for the scholarship, she just, she just wouldn't have been able to, Simi. That is amazing. So how often do they do this? So it's every year. Uh, this year, they got 450 eligible applications. So there's a huge demand, right? Um, and only 112 of the students got it. So uh, once a year, this year, they are hoping for a get together to uh, celebrate this fall with all the students in the cohort. Uh, now that uh, COVID restrictions are being lifted, they see it as a possibility. Oh, I love that. All right, Raji, thank you. Thanks, Simi. Oh, that's our Raji Silha with our great news story of the morning. This is Mornings with Simi. In less than an hour from now, we'll be hearing from Education Minister Jennifer Whiteside and Dr. Bonnie Henry and others talking about the planning for getting back to school in September. I know school year is not quite fully over for this year yet, but I think it's a year that a lot of people involved in the school system, including students and teachers, would like to put behind them. We know that on September 7th, that should be about stage four of our reopening plan where things mostly look like they're back to normal. So does that mean the same thing for schools? And what would people who are in the system like to see this September? Joining us now is Matt Westfall from the Surrey Teachers Association. He's the president. Matt, thanks for being back with us. Thank you for having me, Tim. First off, I, we were speaking with Jordan Tinney the other day about the improvement in Surrey schools. What's it been like for you? How, are things very different these days? Things are very different because we've had days, quite a few days, where there's been no exposures, no notices whatsoever. So that's a, a very welcome change after what this year has been like. I can imagine, yeah. So looking ahead to September, what are you hoping to hear this morning? Well, we've learned an awful lot about the virus this year and also about how things work in schools. And what we're looking for is a plan that doesn't just seek to return everything to normal because this pandemic will not be done in September. Most students still will not be vaccinated. So there's still going to be need for enhanced safety measures. Okay, so first off, what kind of enhanced safety measures are you talking about? Well, one thing is, is cleaning, because one thing we've seen this year is the cleaning has made a difference. Like elementary schools previously typically would not have a daytime custodian, and now they have. And, but the concern is without additional funding for this, those, that, all that staffing is going to be cut back. And we, that's definitely not what we want to see. The government needs to come to the table with more money for cleaning. So how much, do we know how much of an expense that has been? I don't know, but it's in the millions of dollars for Surrey, uh, given our size. We have 130 sites. Right. So, okay, that would be a big thing if they could include that. What about masks? Masks are something we think are still going to have a role there. 
We're going to have to wait until it's closer to September to see whether they're mandatory or not. But at the very least, they should be provided and funding is going to be needed for that. And another thing, since we know this is an airborne disease, is we need to complete the work of assisting the ventilation in all the schools to make sure that, you know, every classroom has proper ventilation because that plays a critical role. Yeah, that's going to be, I've already had some emails from teachers on that too. Now, Matt, you mentioned that you don't think most students are going to be vaccinated, but the rates show us that, you know, 12 and up, they are definitely getting vaccinated. Absolutely. And that's a really welcome thing. I'm glad to see young people are really embracing this. Not all students in that age group will be, but critically, students under 12, which is the majority of uh, elementary students will not be. And this year we've seen that the most transmissions happened in elementary schools. So there's still going to be a concern because young kids can still get COVID, can still spread it. Right. Okay. So do you think they're ready to have that discussion about masks though? I, I also heard from some teachers who said they, they're kind of done with the whole mask thing. Yeah. I mean, I mean no one likes them. And, and that's why we think at the very least they have to be provided and there has to be that option. I think it's going to have to depend on what the actual conditions are in particular places, whether they have to be mandatory again or not. And we would like to see a plan that has more flexibility than last year's plan did to adjust for local conditions. Right. I guess a lot of this, what it sounds like to me is, Matt, like we just need to to continue on with constant monitoring. Yes, absolutely. I mean, we can't, we can't, we can't just let up or let our guard down completely because, we, we, other countries have shown that their rates can go down and then they can come back up. So we, we just want to make sure that doesn't happen here. What's it been like for you, like just trying to teach this year? What have you heard from other teachers? Uh, teachers have found this an extremely difficult year, particularly in Surrey, given our numbers, because there's a, lo- a number of schools where they've had exposure notices every two or three days all year until this month. So that has really worn people down. Everyone working in the school system and all the students too are, are exhausted. And so I think people are ready for this year to be done and, ho- and hoping for a, a better one next year, for sure. Right. Do you think more activities could be a part of that? I think for kids, it's important to get them back to as much of a regular school life as possible. As much as possible, as long as we can do it safely. So there's always that caveat. But definitely students have really missed out on all kinds of activities this year. And so as much as can be done safely, we would like those to come back. Okay, so then what is your message to the government? I know there's been a lot of input in this plan. They've got parent advisory councils, BCTF, uh, school trustees. What, do you, what is the absolute thing that you want them to remember? The absolute thing we want them to remember is that uh, we st- we're still going to need enhanced safety measures. They can't just go back to the way it was pre-pandemic. Those measures cost money, and school districts have been, a lot of them have been facing deficits this year and had to make a lot of cuts. So there is still going to be need for extra funding to bridge them through this year. All right, we'll see what happens. Matt, thank you so much for your time. Thank you very much.